What's going on, Steph? All right, all right. Um, I'm happy that the end of the year is coming. We should have some jingle bells and stuff. But uh, <laughs> I'm also uh, very excited about... Is it the final chapter of this? It's the uh... final chapter. Oh, my God. <laughs> of the epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll get your turn to, to run a show soon, Steph. <laughs> After New Year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, man. Let's just... just get into it man i let's mean let's get into it all right here we go let's uh share my screen here get this going yeah. where are you <laughs> i didn't check Hold youtube on. yet but i'm i'm guessing it's our <laughs> our series already has been going viral so oh yeah totally it's it's yeah. uh it's all over the map it's uh it's really going it's like uh, <laughs> nobody's talking about metaverse anymore or anything. It's just no, no, no. It's design yeah. thinking, and what kind of BS <laughs> is this design thinking? <laughs> what kind of BS is this design thinking? That's exactly right. Are you seeing? Uh, <laughs> did yep. I share my presenter view or did I share the actual thing? You shared the presenter view. That's what I thought. I couldn't find Which this is tab. Cool. This is, is silly. Cool. It's all right. It's all right. We're gonna do this. Welcome to the amateur right. show. <laughs> I don't know why it's not showing up. Here it is. Where were you last time? All right. Here we go. All right, Steph. So do you remember what happened in the last show? <laughs> last episode? Uh, kind of. <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> so the last two episodes, we started off uh, kind of laying out two main arguments against design thinking. The first is is that innovation itself is an overrated business strategy. These are my arguments. Mm. Um, and the second is that even if it wasn't an overrated business strategy, design thinking would be a poor tool for innovation. And we're also going to talk about how it's risky for a brand identity design. Uh, but we started down the path of the second argument last time where we looked at uh, uh, these uh, case studies. Um, here we go. What is going on? So slow. Anyway, uh, we looked at case studies of IDEO. We picked apart each one. We found that that essentially maybe one or two of all of their different projects have actually been major successes. Um, even the the case studies that everyone design thinkers say are successes, we picked those apart, did a little bit of digging and found that they were not the successes that everyone thought they were. Uh, and now we're going to go a little bit further into my second point against design thinking as a tool for innovation, which is that it prioritizes novelty over functionality. Now, in my, at the very end of the last episode, I teased out an empirical study uh, where um uh, there was a design thinking institute that decided to see, okay, is design thinking actually effective in 2011? And I believe that they actually came to the conclusion, even though that's not the conclusion in their paper, that they found it was not a successful uh, strategy for coming up with great innovative ideas. That institute is the Hatso Plattner Institute, which IDEO founded. Um, to then start a training school at Stanford called uh, Stanford's D School, which is the gold standard in design thinking training. And this is the study uh, that they came up with. It's, it was in 2011. And they first, in order to find out if is design thinking a good strategy for coming up with um, 
uh, is design thinking effective? They had to define, okay, what's the goal of design thinking? And they defined the, that goal as innovation. And then they had to define what is innovation to see if it was actually reaching that goal. And their conclusion was that innovation was uh, involved useful and unusual solutions. Remember those two words, useful and unusual. So it actually has to function for it to be an innovation. Otherwise, it's just going to die uh, uh, die, and, and not be used by anyone. And it has to be unusual. Otherwise, it's not innovative either because, you know, innovation, the whole idea is it's something new, right? Um, mm. So what they what they did is they they found two teams that were trained by design thinking uh, trained in design thinking by Stanford's D school and two teams that had no design thinking training whatsoever. And they had them tackle a problem in the field of therapy, even though no one on any of these teams had any experience working in that field whatsoever. So here's what they found, Steph. The teams that were trained by Stanford's D school created more unusual solutions, but mm -hmm fewer useful solutions so what happened was <laughs> surprise they had surprise a, surprise surprise right they had a panel of experts that looked at the solutions that they had run through the design thinking process and the solutions that the non-design thinking trained um, team came up with and essentially the d school team came to them with a bunch of really unusual ideas that they have they immediately picked apart as being not useful because they're not going to work in the real world or in this field whereas the team that had no design thinking training whatsoever came to them, presented their solutions. And to those solutions, those experts said, yeah, this is actually not unusual because it's being used all over the place because it's such a useful solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, I think that this is, this is pretty conclusive evidence that there's a, at least a major flaw in design thinking as a strategy. Their conclusion was simply that you got to watch out for the unusualness, right? You got it. They, mm. they subtitled it, mind the oddness gap. But we, they didn't give us any insight into how the non-design um, thinking trained team came up with their solutions. We have no idea how similar or how different their, their process was from design thinking, mm -hmm. um, which you would think if it was very similar to design thinking, they might actually say something about that. Um, so in my mind, it's, it's, it's one of the only studies that I, it is the only study I know of that set out to, to determine whether or not design thinking was effective. And it's, it's, it really does uh, suggest that there is at least uh, a huge flaw in half of design thinking. Um, if not, uh, that design thinking is a poor strategy at all. Here is my third point, Steph, which is the user is not always right. So does design thinking is all about empathizing with the user, but mm. Steph, you and I know very well uh, the reason that we uh, that we started debunking the advertising, branding, and marketing industry is because we discovered that consumers do not interact with brands in the way that all of the gurus over the years have said that they do. Right? There's all kinds mm -hmm. of reasons. There's all kinds of problems with trusting users to help you come up with good solutions. Here are just a few. They don't care about your bottom line, so they, they they really don't want you to make money. They want to have everything as free and convenient as possible. They are unreliable narrators. They make intuitive, irrational decisions more often than not. They interact with products differently in research settings than in the market. They are riddled with biases. biases. They like products uh, that they test that they would never actually buy in the market. They don't speak for everyone else. It's really easy to get a really poor sample of, of users to mm -hmm. test a product. And they are inconsistent in their feedback. You ask them for feedback one week, 
they'll give you something. And then in two to three weeks to five weeks after that, they'll give you completely different feedback. So it's really difficult to trust users when coming up with, with useful and unusual solutions. And to really illustrate this point and bring it home, we need to talk about Apple. So design thinkers love using Apple as an example of the company, the brand that is is the greatest model for design thinking that they can think of. Even though we they'll use say Apple for for our purposes, marketing, <laughs> exactly. branding, design exactly. thinking. Oh man, it's, it's just a so easy. Company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so they'll tell you that that Apple has always been design thinking company, that Steve Jobs has always been a design thinker. But in reality, Steve Jobs was not a design thinker. He was a design dictator by all accounts. (laughs) So he was notorious for firing usability staff, the people who practiced similar practices as design thinking, and then just, you know, saying, no, we're just going to do it this way, the way that I want it to be done. And then those products became extremely successful in the market. But let's just look at a little bit of the history of Apple to bring this point home, which is from day one, they have been incompatible with any other system, whether it's computers or phones or even their MP3 player. They have completely different interfaces. So you you really have to relearn how to use a computer uh, if you switch from Apple to PC or you have to switch from PC to an Apple. And then this is a great example. In 2016, they released uh, their MacBook that had USB-C ports when every other one of their products... Oh, sorry. That was a little teaser there. When every other one of their products (laughs) uh, was incompatible with USB-C. So you Hmm. bought a computer that year and you bought a phone that year, you can't work with them together, which is, you know, obviously not something users want. Um, They even notoriously slowed down batteries uh, using different software updates as as, um, users' phones started to age. And who can forget, Steph, the teaser that I just accidentally pressed the key to show you, the eye penis. (laughs) Do you have an eye penis, penis, Steph? Do you know what this is? What what is the eye penis? The eye penis. No, go ahead. The eye penis is an adapter for a headphone jack because apparently Apple believed Ah. the headphone jacks were going to be obsolete the year Mm -hmm. they they released their phone. And uh, what they ended up doing is capitalizing on this. They sold these little these little uh, dongles or you know eye penises, whatever you want to call them, for twenty five bucks a pop. They also partnered with Beats headphones that were Bluetooth and started selling them through the company. So really, they benefited financially a lot by screwing over the user in so many different situations. Now, I use Bluetooth headphones. Uh, these headphones are Bluetooth, but. Back in the day when I was taking a lot more flights and going on a lot more flights, you know, the battery would die and I needed that headphone jack to keep the the headphones going. So it's certainly not an, even now it's not obsolete. Bluetooth headphones are not going to last that long. You really do need <laughs> the headphone jack for these bigger headphones. Now, I think it, I think th- it's your Northern Apple fanboy. You know, here's the thing. I have an Apple computer. I have an Apple phone. Yeah. I have AirPods, you know, I really do have a lot of Apple products because at this point it's just too annoying and frustrating and uh, ugly to switch to other other products, other brands. Mm. Um, but here's the thing, design thinking grovels at the feet of the user at all costs. 
But Apple considers the users and then disregards them often. When you obsess over the users, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. You're going to release products that they don't actually like, but you thought that they would like in your testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to, to you're probably not going to be able to grow your company um, to be the next Google, Apple, or Facebook because you're so hyper-focused on users. And in many cases, even innovations um, suffer when you when you obsess over users as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so far, what do you think, Steph? Well, I mean, Give you some uh, time two, here. two things that, that are interesting to me. One, the unusual um, and useful uh, was very interesting to me because it reminds me a lot of like what, what we talked about when it comes to differentiation versus like mm, mm, relevance yeah, or something. Yeah, I think it's right. a similar thing where if yeah. you start being obsessed too much by this thing of making it unique and special and and unusual you can end up in places where it's not useful or relevant or interesting and and i think that then leads to i think what you said about like originality is not easy to find when you always go through the same process of you know asking Mm -hmm. people what they want sometimes they're just original ideas that don't seem to work but actually yep. do work when they come out. So it's exactly, it's, exactly. It's yeah. All of that randomness uh, that comes up here. Uh, and that is definitely confirming a lot of my, my beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So here's the third point. And you mentioned in our last episode that you've uh, sold clients on, you know, your process, which involves brainstorming and, and, and I would imagine pretty heavily. Is that, is that safe to assume? Well, I mean, obviously, I I uh, shifted somewhat, um, right. but there is moments where we can diverge, as they call it. In uh, <laughs> I think they call it that way in in design thinking, where we allow yeah, ourselves see. to just uh, fantasize a bit. Yeah, that that happens. Yeah, that is something that you know. In all my research in design thinking, I see very little, very few people actually mentioning that. That's mm. uh, that idea that you kind of let ideas ruminate for a while. Um, it, at least it's not at the forefront of the design thinking process, and it's mm. certainly not at the forefront of design sprints, which is kind of Google's original kind of take on design thinking, which is a five day let's get this done and pump this out, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but but here's the interesting thing about brainstorming. It started in the 1950s by an ad man who worked on Madison Avenue. So think the show Mad Men. One of those guys came up with the idea of brainstorming. But ever since this this idea has has been popularized, researchers have you know uh, been trying to figure out is this an actual effective tool? Does this tool actually work? And they found little to no evidence to suggest that it does and mounds of evidence to show that it's actually an ineffective or poor poor tool at coming up with good ideas. And here are just a few of those reasons. There's there's more than than these that have been researched, but these are the ones that I think are the most obvious, right? You may be already looking at some of these and laughing, right? So social loafing is the first one. This is the idea where if you have a team of people, some people within that team are going to just rely on other people within that team to do most of the work. So they're going to be less involved and invested in the brainstorming process because maybe they don't like that kind of process or they think differently or they don't enjoy the people in the brainstorming group or whatever. And they're just going to let other people kind of take up the slack. Of course, we see this a lot in college where the one person is, you know, at least in my, my groups in college, the one person was always just absent from the conversation and then all of a sudden would show up to present the project. 
Um, two, there is regression to the mean. So if you have a weak link in your brainstorming session, because of all kinds of social reasons, people tend to dumb down their ideas, dumb down um, their efforts to meet that weakest link, or maybe it's a few weakest links. Um, three, it's personality differences, right? So the main ones that I'm going to point out here are introvert and extrovert. Of course, mm -hmm. in a brainstorming session, the extroverts are going to always dominate the conversation unless you set things up really well to make sure yeah. that happen, right? There's um, there's like online tools. I've done I've done a lot of mm -hmm. online workshops through like yeah. COVID, and I've noticed the difference in like input from who and what the input is. If you mm -hmm. allow people to, you know, type stuff, drag in yeah. visuals, draw. So there's yeah. definitely some improvement in that area. Although other things then get lost because you're in a digital space as well. So exactly. no clean solutions. Right. right. Yeah. The the other, the, the fourth, you know, kind of pitfall of, of brainstorming is you're limited in the people you can choose, right? So IDEO can find the perfect master brainstormers from all over the world. But most companies already have the team members set in stone, right? Whether they're good brainstormers or terrible brainstormers, you have to have them in the conversation for whatever reason when coming up with these ideas. Um, five is, is energy levels. Some people have higher energy in the morning, some in the evening, some on Monday, some on Fridays, some during the summer, some during the holidays, right? To, to say to everyone, we're going to come and, and join together in this hour, two hours, and design sprints up to eight hours, maybe even 10. We're going to come together and we're going to all put in our best effort in this slot, you know, time slot right here. To assume that everyone's going to be at their best in that moment is, is, you know, when you really think about it, kind of a silly idea yeah. to force everyone into this room in this exact moment. The, the um, best thing is to add some like alcohol in the mix and then yeah. it gets to the point where you feel it's the most epic brainstorm ever. And then the next morning <laughs> you wake up and you're like, what, what, what did we, go we up do? With? <laughs> Uh, the sixth and final issue that that I want to point out here is is that there are there are no there's no room for incubation or percolation periods. So what mm. this really means is a break from the problem. Yeah. Um, incubation periods are shorter breaks. Percolation periods, the best percolation periods are two to three weeks or longer. Yep. You know where you essentially stop in the right in the middle of solving this complex problem, um, yep. and then you leave the problem completely behind. And what happens is uh, research has have shown that most aha moments come after these periods mm. because it allows people to kind of uh, subconsciously take in their surroundings um, and then connect the dots to the problem. And so without even like consciously thinking about the, the problem, they end up coming up with these really great solutions just because everything around them has kind of mixed in and blended in and connected dots yeah. to come up with these conclusions. That, uh, that's, now, that's yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but just yeah. wanted to say that that's a very like, that's actually something I think I, I never thought about it, but mm. what I do usually is like when we kick off a project, there's this, you know, workshop where there is some type of brainstorming and right. then like a type of conversation. But actually what I then do is I have a period of two, three, four weeks, depending on the complexity mm -hmm. where I go in, do my research, start doing the strategy. And I go back from time to time to that document or, or summary of yeah. that workshop. Yeah. And that's really where some things start hitting and connecting. Other things just go away. But that time period, as you said, that, that percolation period is, is super important. So it, it, it really helps to treat it that way. Right. Yeah. You know, I think at the end of the day, you can use 
brainstorming as like a, a supplemental tool, right? Yeah. But but design thinking and design sprints especially rely so heavily on it um, yeah. that really the, the best approach is kind of a hub and spoke approach, which I think we talked about last episode where, yeah, you do come together at times, but most of yep. the like great work is going to happen in isolation. And there's just not yeah. much isolation happening um, in the way that design thinking is usually practiced. Um, you know, you saw that IDEO video, um, the Dateline episode, right? Throughout that whole video, of course, this is maybe a unique project for them. They were only given five days um, by Dateline, but I, I don't, maybe that's common for them. I'm not sure, but it was just all teamwork and all brainstorming. Mm. No one ever really had time alone to think about this, this problem. And that's apparently not how they came up with the Apple mouse. It was a lot of working in isolation, like we talked about in the last episode. Okay, Steph. So why is design thinking so popular if there's virtually no evidence to suggest that it's actually that effective of a strategy? And I think there's a lot of different biases here. I'm not going to go through each of these. You can pause from, for each slide as I go through them um, and kind of see how I, I connect it to design thinking. But there's the bandwagon effect, survivorship bias, the sunk cost fallacy, which I think is the key, or one of the bigger ones, confirmation yeah. bias. There's FOMO, in-group bias, groupthink, the halo effect, naive realism, and there's out-group hom homogeneity bias, the IKEA effect, and blind spot bias. And I think the sunk cost fallacy is one of the keys, especially for brand designers who have who have invested from an early like from an early onset into design thinking for their clients. They're making money by selling this product because you know the uh, halo effect. It looks innovative. The process itself looks innovative. So we assume the solutions are going to be innovative or the, the process is creative. And if you're a designer, that works to be able to sell clients yeah. on that process as a creative. Um, but then when it doesn't work, you either convince yourself that it does or, you know, it's too late at this point, right? You've, you've built your entire persona, your career, your brand or business around mm -hmm this process, who is going to, and they've made, in many cases, made a lot of money from it. Who's just yep. going to say, all right, we're going to just scrap this because it's not really working. Right. Um, so there's just a lot of, I, I a think lot of, it's like, uh, also managers must love this ID because it's, you know, in short mm -hmm. times you can do amazing stuff. I mean, that, exactly. that sounds like exactly. ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of people, like even in big corporates, they have this like, oh, nice, let's go do a, a two-week sprint and there's going right. to be magic and all right. kinds of innovation stuff coming. I think that that just like it, it, from both perspectives, from the vendor and the buyer perspective, it, it's mm -hmm. kind of like this... There's a lot of uh, fun uh, economics in it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it certainly is easy to make money from this process. And that is why design thinking is a $6 billion industry, despite no evidence really strongly suggesting that it works, right? So it's crazy that we're spending all of this money on, on uh, paying design thinking consultants or bringing in um, you know, uh, uh, bringing in design thinking into your in-house work. It's just kind of crazy to, to assume that, that this is a legitimate industry, right? In a lot of ways, in my opinion. Okay, Steph, we're going to transition here to the last piece of why I think design thinking is ineffective. So are you ready? I'm buckling up. Good. Now buckle up. <laughs> you didn't see this coming. That's <laughs> nice that you said that. And let's talk branding and design thinking okay. unscripted people i didn't see yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you like what i did there everybody you gotta listen to steph's podcast here this is from his little intro so 
Uh, yep. <laughs> it's the best one. Yeah, I decided to give you a Christmas present with that one right there. Um, <laughs> so I believe that 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 brand identity design is possibly the worst application for design thinking, mm. um, at least the most dangerous and risky application for design thinking. And here's why. Design thinking is all about solving users' problems, right? But as we know from a lot of great research from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, why are you so slow on here? Okay. From the Ehrenberg Bass Institute um, and others, brand design, identity design is really about building fame. It's about your assets being easily recognized and mm. uniqueness, not being confused with competitor assets. And the best brand assets are meaningless and distinctive. You the the Geico has a, a gecko has nothing to do with car insurance. It could in a car insurance commercial, it can only possibly be connected to Geico because it mm. makes absolutely no sense to put it pair it with any other insurance company. Um, McDonald's, the name of McDonald's is is not Scottish or Irish, right? It, it really is. It's it's an, an all American fast food chain, and yet its name is distinctive because it's it's got this weird Scottish heritage that actually has nothing to do with fast food whatsoever. And then the Starbucks logo, which apparently I'm sure they put a lot of like they overthought and came up with this mythical creature and tried to stretch a comparison to Seattle coffee and and all of that. Right. They probably did practice, you know, a lot of these silly practices with design thinking. Mm. But at the end of the day, no one knows what this is. They just see it as distinct from everything else. It's completely meaningless to coffee. And finally, Captain Obvious, which is Hotels.com. Um, little guy, which they recently discontinued. I think it's one of the dumbest decisions they've ever made. Um, they're now just creating a bunch of generic advertising that's not distinctive mm. whatsoever, um, probably because they're, here, meaning, they're empathizing meaningful. with users. <laughs> but meaningful, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So why meaning meaningless and distinctive? Because we're, we're trying to build memory structures in consumers' brains. And if you are meaningless to your category, you're going to be distinctive. Um, and, and therefore, people aren't going to confuse you with anyone else. So when you start thinking deeply about solving user problems, you fall into all of these traps. Here's just three. Color psychology, right? Who's our customer? You know, what do they really want? What emotional benefits are they going to get from our product? Well, let's let's tack a color on that evokes that emotional benefit to our brand, right? But if if you're likely just going to attach uh, you know, find the emotional benefit is the same for your brand as it is with every other brand in the category. Even worse than that, there is no evidence to suggest that color psychology affects um, buying decisions whatsoever. You're also going to fall into the design trends trap. We're starting to target Gen Z, so now we got to be trendy for Gen Z. Well, everyone else who's targeting Gen Z is also going to be trendy. So when you try to solve the problem of trying to appeal to a younger audience, you're also going to fall into that trap of um, sameness with other brands in the category and really unnecessary rebrands is the big one, right? You're targeting this one demographic. Now you're wanting to start shifting into a new demographic. Well, let's abandon all of the memories that consumers have associated with our brands so that we can be, you know, flashier or, you know, sexier for this young new generation or, or maybe if even vice versa, right? We need to start mm. selling to baby boomers because they have all the money and Gen Z has nothing, right? And so maybe they tone things down, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it would be a cool thing to see like a very hip young brand rebrand. To that would be amazing. We're aiming for boomers. We're actually aiming funny. for boomers. You really should be aiming for boomers early. They do have the money. Yeah. Um, so these are all kinds of traps that you fall into when you start obsessing over design thinking. I know design, I know designers 
brand strategists who obsess over color psychology and design trends and are, you know, never turn down a rebranding opportunity, even with even when a company absolutely does not and should not rebrand themselves. Right. Um, mm. So there's there's all kinds of different traps. It's just really dangerous to get into design thinking for brand identity design because you are likely just going to end up with a generic brand um, that, that just kind of gets lost in the category. Okay, Steph, I hope you've been waiting for this. I hope I, our, our viewers and listeners have been waiting for this, but I'm going to introduce you to my oversimplified trademark process Ooh. to become the next Google, Facebook, or Apple. Here's what I think you got to do, right? So we talked about, uh, you know, if, if you're just trying to have a successful business where you feed your family, then innovation can be nice. Um, maybe even design thinking can help you, even with brand identity design, who knows? But if you want to be the next big brand, this is yep. what you got to do. I call it growth thinking, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you got to choose a weak category. Find a category. Don't be attached to a category. Find one that is not advertising, yep. where none of the brands are distinctive, or it's young, whatever the case is. Find a weak category and then copy the most successful competitors in that category as long as you look and sound distinctive. And that's why you got to create some ducks. Uh, you mm. might wonder what I'm saying about that. In our first episode, Steph, with using AI, created our meaningless and distinctive brand asset in this duck. You got to do the same, maybe with AI, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> And then you got to show the ducks everywhere. You got to show them in your packaging, online, in your advertising, wherever consumers interact with your brand, you better have a duck plastered on that thing, right? Even in, in video ads, you better have, you know, a visual duck, an audio duck, you know, whatever you can get, <laughs> uh, a tagline wow. duck, wow. you know, just create your ducks and show them. And then be everywhere, be physically and mentally available, just be as easy to buy for as many people as possible, and advertise to as many people as possible as often as possible. And I would like to showcase a brand that has done just that they have actually worked very closely with me to become the successful brand that they are using this design thinking approach. And that is, we'll get out of here. <laughs> and that, is, <laughs> that is Apple. What have they oh, done from the beginning? They chose a weak category. When personal computers were lame, they made them accessible to everyone. When MP3 players were all black and terribly named and not marketed well, they came up with the iPod. When uh, they stole the wheel, right? Their idea for the graphical user interface and computer mouse was stolen from Xerox. Mm. Their MP3 player player was stolen from MP Man. The touchscreen smartphone was stolen from LG. The smartwatch was stolen from a Kickstarter campaign called Omate. And rumor has it they're working on smart glasses, which is stolen from Google Glass. And then they created their ducks. The name itself is meaningless and distinctive to, to the category, to the products that they sell. And so therefore their logo would be as well. Dancing silhouettes, white MP3 players, right? When everyone else's was black, colorful bubble desktop desktops of the 2000s that are cringeworthy now to look at, silver laptops with their MacBook Pros and white really in the beginning, distinct interfaces where you, you know it's an Apple product just by looking at the screen and Justin Long and whoever that other actor was in the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ad campaign from the mm. 2000s. And then they show their ducks. They obsess with showing the ducks to the extent that they put their logo upside down for the user of the computer and right side up for every user that's sitting around looking at the computer, right? 
they they give you stickers to put them everywhere where you want so you can show their ducks for them their startup screens have their logos and again in the 2000s they've definitely dropped the ball here but in the 2000s white backgrounds on everything and finally they are everywhere 2016 was the last um, publicly released uh, budget uh, for advertising, but it was $1.8 billion a year. And their phones and computers are available anywhere that phones and computers are sold. They even have their own physical stores. And with that, mm-hmm. Steph, come on, I rest my case at a little nod to our episode two of this show, which you should definitely watch. There it is, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> bravo bravo when, when is Thank the you. book when is the book coming <laughs> uh 16 years from now probably <laughs> when does oh ending has died <laughs> oh yeah well um actually the framework kind of works <laughs> <laughs> i it's mean seriously a... growth thinking man growth thinking that sounds steal really the good. wheel steal right? the wheel it works it works <laughs> I'm 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 gonna do like redo everything, re, like get my <laughs> courses offline and then start selling this this new thing. Start yeah, we should we it. should we should partner together. I think we can make billions of dollars. Maybe we could turn this into a six billion dollar industry. Nay, maybe an eight billion dollar industry. Who Why knows? <laughs> I'm actually surprised that like you you chose design thinking, which I mean does make sense. But actually, you could have probably done a similar thing on the branding industry, right? Oh yeah, but yeah. But we do that all the time. What right? we're doing all, all the time already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've done plenty of that. I needed something a little refreshing. I, I've avoided this topic for so long because it's so hard to really prove a case because no one is critiquing this thing. And that 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 was my point in the first episode that no one critiques mm. this. That's a clear red flag. Something's not right there. You know, if there's no critique around it, then it's obviously not a good process. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean. Again, like I, I can see use cases for it and I don't think it's it's a bad thing overall, but right. it's like the 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 cultural around it and, and like the fact that as you said it's like so uncontested, that's right. that right. that is there are some real issues there. And especially if you look at like then the examples that are given and, and all of like the, the ideas around it, it's it's problematic for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Now you oh, can right. finally get an episode now, to yourself, Steph. Yeah, I'm sorry what? for taking all of the all of the playing time. <laughs> Next you know, episode is gonna be like me talking about one <laughs> one one point. You you did like a full Netflix series, so so <laughs> no pressure on me, no pressure at all. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the deep dive. I think it was uh, super fascinating and uh, curious to see what's gonna be next in the next episode. But that's gonna be on oh, me. Who knows. Who knows? All right, guys. I'm glad you enjoyed our episode. I hope you enjoyed our uh, three-part series. And uh, you should definitely check out our other stuff on the branding and advertising industry because uh, it is probably, maybe even possibly more insane than the design thinking industry. I think that's certainly a possibility, especially when the two converge. It's it's uh, it's a complete nightmare. <laughs> My favorite so far was still the Better Call Saul oh yeah episode. oh yeah mine too Man, mine that too was, that was a that was great <laughs> awesome man. I was Take just, care. yeah all right dude see ya bye-bye